Do me a favor and track down a Bible if you can and get with me to Psalm chapter 34. We are winding down our series now titled Jesus is Greater. We've just got a couple Sundays left in that series, but we've been exploring the many ways in which our Lord and Savior is greater than the experiences that we go through. And so today we're looking at Jesus being greater than our troubles, and we're going to come at it from the Old Testament text of Psalm 34. So let me read the chapter, and then we'll pray and we will get to work. This is Psalm 34, verses 1 to 22. Of David, when he pretended to be insane before Abimelech, who drove him away, and he left. I will extol the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. I will glory in the Lord. Let the afflicted hear and rejoice. Glorify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant. Their faces are never covered with shame. This poor man called and the Lord heard him. He saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, and he delivers them. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. Fear the Lord, you his holy people, for those who fear him lack nothing. The lions may grow weak and hungry, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, my children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Whoever of you loves life and desires to see many good days, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from telling lies. Turn from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. His ears are attentive to their cry. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil to blot out their name from the earth. The righteous cry out and the Lord hears them. He delivers them from all their troubles. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. The righteous person may have many troubles, but the Lord delivers him from them all. He protects all his bones. Not one of them will be broken. Evil will slay the wicked. The foes of the righteous will be condemned. The Lord will rescue his servants. No one who takes refuge in him will be condemned. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we pray right now as we've opened your word together that you would please speak to each of us, that you would help us to understand the troubles that we go through in this life and your ability to deliver us from them all. So give us great confidence, not in ourselves or in our skill, but in you, our Lord and Savior. We pray in your name. Amen. 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 So we've got here this reality that's being taught to us through a psalm that trouble can be an occasion for worship. Trouble can actually lead you into deep expressions of worship, and trouble is also an invitation to become wise. And so we're looking here at this psalm. It'll divide into those two different headings, the way of worship and the way of wisdom. So what is this trouble that we're talking about? What is this trouble that kind of colors the entire psalm here? Well, it is an experience that David had in his life. You'll look at it in the heading. It says, of David. So this is a psalm that David wrote. And it was when he pretended to be insane before Abimelech, who drove him away and he left. Now that comes from 1 Samuel chapter 21. David was a shepherd boy, 
and he was a servant of the king, and he was doing his life and trying to be as helpful as he could, but Saul was the king who was in charge over him, and Saul began to despise David. And so Saul was hunting David and wanted to do him harm. He was going to take his life. So David had to peace out and run for his life, and uh, it happened very quickly. In fact, uh, as the story unfolds, he left in such haste that he didn't have food with him, he didn't have a weapon with him. He just quickly departed, and he landed in a city called Gath. So he's on the run, he's homeless, he's displaced, he's threatened, he's in danger. And being in Gath now, he's trying to seek refuge there, but the people of Gath begin to realize this is one of our enemies. So now he's in foreign occupied territory and the servants are saying, isn't this the dude of whom they sang this song? Saul has slain thousands, but David his tens of thousands. And all of a sudden he's outed. Right? He's running for his life, he's seeking safety, and he finds himself in another perilous situation, and he's realizing, I have to figure out a way out of here. So he pretends to be crazy, he pretends to be insane, he's drooling in his beard, he's clawing at the walls, he's doing all this stuff, and the king says, I've got enough crazy people around here, why do I need another one? Get him out of here, and he's set free. And now David writes this psalm, And he's expressing this deep gratitude for God's care for him in the midst of trouble. So that's the backdrop, and I want you to hear that and feel that because it's not appropriate for us to just kind of have a trite reading uh, of this idea of trouble and what it means to worship in trouble. If your life were in jeopardy to the degree that you actually had to, you know, run out of town quickly, if your life were in such peril that you had to leave everything that you knew to be familiar and comfortable, and you didn't know what that was going to look like. And if you knew that there were people who hated your gut so badly that if they could get their hands on you, you'd be in deep, deep trouble. And you're just running for your life, and you're just seeking refuge, and and you're not even thinking clearly, so you land yourself in another situation where there's even more trouble. And other people are looking at you thinking, this guy is not one of us, and we should arrest him and, and do harm to him before he does something to us. His life is totally turned upside down. Everything that he knew, his his circle of friends has shrunk incredibly. He's, in this case, by himself or with a handful of others, but man, he, he, he doesn't have the same resources that he had months ago. So he is going through trouble, and I want you to feel that. So as we look at this idea, you're beginning to think through, what does it look like when my life isn't going my way? What does it look like when I had a plan, but that plan is entirely scrapped? What does it look like when I had all these ambitions of what I thought God was going to do in me and through me, and it doesn't happen? Can I worship God then? Can I become wise then? So the way of worship in verses 1 to 10, trouble can teach you to worship. We're invited into it. Look at verses 1 and following. I will extol the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. I will glory in the Lord. Let the afflicted hear and rejoice. Glorify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. So we learn a few different things, even in this call to worship. One of the things that we learn is that the person of faith has a great reason to praise. That if we come to understand who God is and what he is doing for us, we become people who are permanently worshiping him. I will extol the Lord at all times. His name will always be on my lips, and I will always be giving him praise. 
then it's an invitation, too, to recognize that worship and trouble are not antithetical. It's not that if you're going through trouble, you can't worship. It's that often they go hand in hand. Worship and trouble are found closely wed together all through this psalm and really all through the scriptures. Christians are people, believers are people who can go through the difficulties of life and they find God to be enough. So worship and trouble go together. Uh, My family and I, we started rereading Little Pilgrim's Big Journey. It's a children's version of Pilgrim's Progress. I've told you about it a lot of times before, but last night we were reading and Christian, the individual, the young man who's making his way to heaven, to the celestial city, is now with a friend named Hopeful. And they're on this path, the king's highway to the king's city. And last night as we were reading, we read the part where they met four other children who were from the, the town of Love Gain. And they met these four kids and they, Christian and Hopeful said to them, hey, do you want to join us in this journey? Do you want to come with us to the city? The king is glorious and wonderful and will take good care of you. But I need to warn you, Christian is totally honest with them, the, the path is perilous. It's hard. There is trouble along the way. It will be incredibly challenging. And the four other kids say, that's not what we've heard. We will not go with you. We will not go on this dangerous path that you speak of. The king is able to give us blessing. The king wants us to be prosperous. The king wants us to be happy. We're not going to travel when the situation is unfavorable. We're only going to go in good weather. We're only going to go when it's safe. We're only going to go when it makes sense to us. And that paints for us a picture of the difference between people who understand true biblical Christianity. The pathway to heaven is one filled with troubles. It's one filled with affliction. It's one that is very challenging. And there are many people who will turn away from the path because it is so difficult. But we want to be the kind of people who recognize the challenges are coming and are here, and we're going to worship God regardless. We're going to continue to worship him because he is worthy. We learn, too, that worship is for other people. It's not just a private experience. It's an invitation to others. Let the afflicted hear and rejoice. Let all who are going through hardship join in the chorus of God's praise. And then it tells us in verse 3, let us exalt his name together. Worship is not just something to to be done by ourselves, but it is something that we want to invite other people into. That God is worthy of our worship and others should join in that praise. So let me think through this briefly with you about how I imagine this has played out in the pandemic. I mean, if we're thinking about troubles and we're going through, what does this look like in real time? What does it look like to be followers of God who have gone through difficulties? I was thinking through it and I came up with three different, this is, you know, really overgeneralized, but I think it'll be helpful. Three different ways that people have responded to that trouble. One way that people have responded is that they have become more indifferent. There is a group of people who have gone through the difficulty of the last 12 to 18 months, and they come out on the other side of it with this indifference toward, toward God. They have found other things in which they're seeking refuge. They've found other pursuits and passions. They, they, they are not considering God in the same way that maybe they were even previously. They're more indifferent now to him. That's a group of people that I think is easy to identify. A second group, though, would be a group who have become more self-confident. 
They're not softened by the experience of troubles. They're hardened by it. They have become more determined that their way is the right way. There's less worship going on and more condemnation going on. There's a group of people who I think neatly fit in that category, unfortunately. And then there's a third group. There are some people who have gone through trouble and they have come out softened by it, more sensitive to the things of God more in tune with the ways of God, and therefore they are constantly worshiping God. You see, this is an invitation to worship, and the trouble can be that occasion for our worship. Now, why is that the case? Why does trouble enlist us into worship? Well, the reason why trouble has the ability to do that is because it changes our perspective. It changes our focus. We go from looking at ourselves and our own lives, and we begin to notice the Lord who delivers And we find that in verses 4 to 10. The Lord is able to come to our rescue. He comes in and he rescues us. And it's interesting, you know, I was thinking about that event where David was in the town of Gath and he's pretending to be insane and he's drooling on himself and clawing at the walls. And and I was thinking, I don't even know if that was the right response, right? Is it okay for Christians? Is, Is it okay for believers to be deceptive? Is it okay to do certain things, to try to be misleading, to save our own skin? I'm not sure. And I don't even think the Bible really comments on that either there or here. It just tells us that's what what happened. But what's interesting to me is that when you look here in Psalm 34, what David holds up as the thing that rescued him was not how crafty he was. It wasn't like, you know what? I had a great idea. I pretended to be insane and I got out of it. No, he says, the reason why I was delivered prayer. The reason why I experienced God's deliverance is because I sought the Lord of deliverance. Look at verse 4. I sought the Lord and he answered me. He's able to deliver me from all my fears. The reason, the, the thing that he says, this is what was the game changer, it's prayer. I was seeking the Lord in that time of trouble and he came to my, to my rescue. He is able to save. Look at verses 5 and following. Look, those who look to him are radiant. Their faces are never covered with shame. This poor man called, and the Lord heard him. He saved him out of his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, and he delivers them. So a few things to note here. One of the things that we need to be aware of is that believers should have a different disposition. Right? If we're seeking the Lord and he's rescuing us, we ought to be able to be described in a way that's, that's put down here, radiant. That when people look at you, they ought to see this beauty of God shining from you and through you. Their faces never covered with shame. I was thinking about it this morning and I was wondering, how would people describe you if you gave them a multiple choice survey? So the people who observe you most regularly right now, coworkers maybe, or family members, or your friend circle, if you were to give them this, this multiple cho- choice survey, how would they respond? Would they, would they say, A, you are radiant, full of joy, you are exuberant, you're just somebody who's a joy to be around, and there's a, a radiation of the goodness of God in your life, peace and joy and all these beautiful things, or would they say you're dejected, that you're downcast, that you're bitter, that you're abrasive even? How would people respond? Because this says those who look to him are radiant. Their faces are never covered with shame. We want to be the kind of people 
who right now, having gone through a very, very hard moment in our culture and in our society and in our world, we want to be the kind of people who are described as radiant with the glory of God. We want to be the kind of people who recognize the nearness of the Lord, his ability to save us out of our troubles because the angel of the Lord is encamped around those and he delivers us. So the invitation then is to try it out, right? I wonder how we're doing, but the, the passage here invites us to at least give it a go. Look at verse 8. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. Many of us have not even tried this yet, but we need to be seeking the Lord in this moment and tasting and seeing whether or not he can satisfy. See for yourself whether or not he is sufficient. See for yourself whether or not he can save. Go to him. He can provide. Fear the Lord, you his holy people, for those who fear him lack nothing. The lions may grow weak and hungry, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. So worship, then, is the proper response to God's ability to save us. Worship is the proper response to his work of deliverance in our lives. Now, again, this does not mean that everything goes well. We go through the troubles. The troubles are actually the occasions to highlight God's goodness. There was a psalm, uh, a hymn, I'm sorry, a hymn that was written in the 1600s, and it uses the lyrics of Psalm 34. It was by Nahum Tate and Nicholas Brady. And as they looked at this psalm and they used the words as the lyrics and they made comments about it and they sang together with the church, they said, through all the changing seasons of life, that was one of the headings in this of why we should worship God. It is through all the changing seasons of life. And they put it like this. We'll put it on the screen as well. Fear him, ye saints, and you will have nothing else to fear. We want to be the kind of people who are trusting in God worshiping God, believing in him, and recognizing his ability to save us. We will fear him in the right and appropriate way, and then we will have nothing else to fear. And that leads us to the second main thing here in our psalm. It's the way of wisdom in verses 11 to 22. Trouble then is an invitation to become wise. So it's a call for us to worship, but it's also a reminder that this is a season to pursue wisdom. So what is wisdom? Well, if you read uh, the Bible, you, you'll notice that there are actually sections of the Bible that are really concerned with wisdom. In fact, it's an entire genre of literature in the Bible. It's called wisdom literature. Books like Proverbs, Song of Songs, Ecclesiastes, and other places, and it, and it shows up in other books as well, like ours here. And if you've read Proverbs before, how does it start? The early chapters are, are an invitation to children Children become wise. Children pursue this reality, the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So wisdom is knowing how to navigate a complicated world. Wisdom is knowing how to deal with the world as it is, and we're being invited here to pursue the learning of wisdom. This week, um, I, I actually watched an online conference on Christian ethics. My in-laws got it for me for my birthday, which tells you how big of a dork I am. I'm the kind of dude who wants to watch seminars on Christian ethics. But I love how it started out. There was a scenario that was painted that was very complex. And the instructor was saying, what I'm here to do is to help you build an ethical instinct. 
because what you most need is not simply textbook answers to complex issues. Like, what does society say about this? Well, here's what the Bible teaches. Here's how you would respond to that. No, what I care deeply about as an individual Christian and as a pastor, I want to know how can we become wise so that even as we talk about some of these hot button issues, that we would actually do it in a way that would draw people to our Savior. That's wisdom. Wisdom is not just knowing the right answer. Wisdom is knowing how to communicate that reality in a beautiful way to other people. So that's what's being offered here. It says, look, verse 11 says, Come, my children, listen to me, and I will teach you the fear of the Lord. This trouble that I went through, I learned from it. So come to me and listen, and I will teach you the fear of the Lord. And then it lays out for us three different realities to help us become wise. The first is live ethically. Live in a way that is beautiful. Look at verses 12 and following. Whoever of you loves life and desires to see many good days, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from telling lies. Turn from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. It's saying, look, here's the way of wisdom. You're going through trouble, but here's your responsibility in it. Do right. Practice righteousness. You can't control all the circumstances in your life, but you can control how you respond to it. Wisdom looks like doing right even when it's incredibly hard. You, believer, do right. Live ethically. Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from telling lies. In the midst of trouble, be careful how you speak. Don't let your mouth be full of slander or complaining or grumbling or even telling your best version of your story that paints you as the hero or the victim. Be concerned with truth. Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from telling lies. Live ethically. Let your speech communicate the beauty of God's goodness. Turn from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. In the midst of trouble, what is our responsibility? Our responsibility is to live right. We need to be the kind of people who are displaying the beauty of godliness even as we go through the hardest of situations. Now, what, what we could say then is that no matter how hard it is and how justified we might feel in retaliating, we instead are called to do right. When we're going through trouble, we are called to honor God in the little realities of our lives. Honor God, do right. Now, this is also the teaching of the New Testament. It's interesting to me that a couple different authors pick up this psalm. James quotes, he cites this psalm when he's talking about believers and their speech. He's, he's citing Psalm 34, and he's making this application. Christians need to be people who are careful with how they communicate. Peter, though, he, takes, he lifts this whole paragraph He's writing a letter to the church that's scattered all over the place. He takes Psalm 34, this whole paragraph on ethics here, and he lifts it out. He cut copies, pastes it in his letter, and he says, okay, guys, this is what it means to be believers in our day. We're going to live in this beautiful way. And the letter continues to address some really challenging realities. Okay, Peter, what about if the authority is corrupt? What about if, if the government over us is corrupt? What about if, if church leaders are corrupt? What if my boss is corrupt? What if my spouse is corrupt? And Peter over and over and over again in his letter says, here's your job, live right. 
Like, yes, I understand. Yes, I can, I can understand and hear you that things are hard for you, and it is troubling, but what is your job as a believer? You do right. That's wisdom. Live beautifully before the watching world. Your trouble gives you an opportunity to practice righteousness. The second thing that's shown to us here is that we should pursue wisdom because the Lord will give an evaluation. Verses 15 and 16, the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their cry. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil to blot out their name from the earth. Here's what it's saying. There's a day coming when everything will be evaluated. The, the more biblical language would be there's a judgment. There's a coming judgment. And there's a difference between those who are righteous and those who practice evil. There's a difference there, and so we need to be mindful of that. We want to pursue wisdom because we recognize one day God is going to come back and he's going to set all things right. And so I'm a very motivated individual. I'm, I'm living for that day. I want to practice righteousness because I understand that there's a judge coming, and I want to be found on the side of righteousness. There's a difference between those who are right and those who practice evil, and it is laid out for us there in 15 and 16, and it shows up again toward the end. But here's another reality, too, that inspires us to pursue wisdom. It is that the Lord sees, protects, and rewards his faithful followers. Verse 17, the righteous cry out, and the Lord hears them. He delivers them from all their troubles. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. One of the reasons why we pursue wisdom is because the Lord is watching. And he cares for you. He cares deeply for you. We cry out and he hears our prayers and delivers us from our troubles. Now that almost seems too good to be true. But here we're reminded of his nearness to those who are broken and dejected. He's close to the brokenhearted and he saves those who are crushed in spirit. This morning as I was praying about this and preparing to share it with you, I was thinking about where some of us are these days, emotionally where we're at and just how we feel. And some of us think, you know what, Cora, that's wonderful. I would love to praise God in my troubles. I'm not there right now. I would love to pursue wisdom, but I just feel so broken and so hopeless right now. I can't imagine these things coming true in my life. And God is saying to us and to you, I see you and I care for you. And I am near to you. You might not be able to imagine how this is going to unfold, but I am near to the brokenhearted and I save those who are crushed in spirit. Shattered dreams, missed, missed opportunities, uh, unrealized expectations. God is saying, look, I understand that all. I see you and I care for you and I'm near to you. I am close to the brokenhearted, and here's what I can do. And this one will take a little bit of explaining, but look at verse 19. The righteous person may have troubles, but the Lord delivers him from them all. And you go, okay, I don't know much, but I know enough to, to say that might not be true. The Lord rescues us from all our troubles. I mean, if you're alive and you just, you know, pay attention a little bit, you understand this doesn't always happen. This doesn't always happen. If you're trying to say that, that God always delivers and he does it in a way where there's an immediacy to it and it all goes well for people, that's just not true. I know good people who have cancer and have been defeated by it. I know good people who are believers in Christ and their marriages have fallen apart. 
I know good and righteous people who are pursuing the way of God and their, their lives are in shambles. So how is it that the Bible has the audacity to say the righteous person will have many troubles, but the Lord will deliver them from all of them? And here's how. It is because his deliverance is forthcoming, right? If There are some versions of Christianity that want to kind of import all of that right now. As, as soon as possible, God is good, he's faithful, he'll deliver us, he'll take care of us. It's all going to go well for those who are faithful. But I think the true version of Christianity is to recognize some of that deliverance is forthcoming. Some of it will only happen when he returns. And in fact, I would put it like this. Some people, I think, really like deliverance more than they like the, the deliverer. They, they want what he can do for them, but they're not willing to wait for him to come. But this is telling us that there is a future reality that no matter how hard the troubles might be, they are going to be overturned. He will deliver us from them all. That is the work of Jesus Christ, and that is a hope that I hold to in his second coming. He will come and make all things right again. He will completely rescue us. We go through these many troubles, but he will deliver us. And he can protect us. Look at verses 20 and following. He protects all his bones. Not one of them will be broken. Evil will slay the wicked, and the foes of the righteous will be condemned. The Lord will rescue his servants. No one who takes refuge in him will be condemned. It's telling us that the, the person of wisdom, the person who's pursuing the things of God, will be well cared for. God will look after them. He will protect them. They will be, they will be rewarded. Evildoers will be punished and condemned. But the Lord will rescue his servants. All who take refuge in him will not be condemned. So as we wrap this thing up, I just want to draw some gospel connections here. As we think about what it means to be worshiping God in our troubles and pursuing wisdom in our troubles, let me remind you of the gospel reality that's at play here. Alexander Kirkpatrick put it like this, the promise to the righteous man in verses 17 to 22, it found an unexpectedly literal realization in the passion of the perfectly righteous one. You read Psalm 34, here's what Kirkpatrick is saying. You read Psalm 34 and you begin to recognize where this actually came true, where this came true in its fullest sense is in the person and work of Jesus Christ. He is the righteous one of whom God perfectly cared for. And by his work on the cross, we experience that saving work as well. John 16, 36, or 33, my notes are really scribbly here. It says, in this world, you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus reminds us of his conquering work over evil and wickedness. You will have trouble, but he has overcome. Derek Kidner puts it like this. Um, he says, The Christian can echo the jubilant spirit of the psalm with added gratitude, knowing the unimagined cost of our rescue in verse 22 and the unbounded scope of his pardoning grace at the end of 22. We can read the psalm and we can say, Yes, this is true. God will protect us, He will rescue His servants. We will not be condemned, and we can say that because we understand that it comes true in Jesus Christ. He is the fulfillment of this psalm. John, when he wrote his gospel, and he was recording the events of the crucifixion, giving us the details of what happened there, 
He described how Jesus was crucified there, and on his right and left were criminals who were also crucified. And Jesus, uh, because of the torture that he endured, he died quickly. And as things were unfolding, the soldiers were breaking the legs of the other um, people being, being executed that day, but they came to him and they didn't break his legs. And so John was recording this and he's giving us the de- details of this event and John 19, verses 31 to 37. And he says this, this is verse 36 of John 19. He says, these things happened, what he's recording for us there, these things happened so that scripture would be fulfilled. And then he, then he directly quotes Psalm 34. Not one of his bones will be broken. You see, the, the truth of John 34 comes true in the person and work of Jesus Christ. We can be confident people who go through troubles and worship God, who recognize that his deliverance is coming. We can have, you know, glimpses of it in the here and now, but we can await the fulfillment of it when he returns. We can go through all of this. We can pursue wisdom, practicing righteousness in a broken world, and we can do that because of what Jesus has done. This is the wisdom of God, believing in the promises of God and seeing them come true in Jesus Christ. Jesus is greater than our troubles. He can transform our troubles into an altar for worshiping, and into a classroom for growing in wisdom. Let's worship him right now. Lord, we pray that as we've opened your word together, that you would remind us afresh today of your goodness. Remind us of the calling that you have given to us, that though we'll go through troubles, you have overcome them. You've overcome the world. And so, Lord, help us to be people who can worship you no matter what is going on in our lives believing that you are a savior and one who can deliver. Lord, help us to pursue wisdom. You've given us our assignment for for the day. Help us to be people who are pursuing wisdom in this world, living beautifully for your glory, helping other people come to know you in a saving way. Help us, please, to do that as individual Christians and as a community of faith. We want people to know you, our Lord and Savior. So we pray this, please, in your name. Amen.